Today on the Gut Health Reset podcast, we are diving into an epidemic that might be at the root of your bowel issues. Constipation and IBS can be associated with chronic Lyme disease and the co-infections of Lyme. But not only bowel disorders can be associated with this, this can also cause anxiety, depression, other neuropsychiatric disorders, joint pain, the list goes on and on. Today's episode is packed with so much usable information on how to move forward if you suspect this so you don't want to miss a minute. Are you struggling with bloating, gas, constipation, and fatigue, but don't know what's causing these problems? The Gut Health Reset Podcast with Dr. Anne-Marie Barter dives deep into the root causes behind these issues that start in the gut. This podcast will give you the knowledge you need to heal your gut and reset your health. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Gut Health Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today I have such a special guest for you. His name is Dr. Daniel Kindelaire. And he is a physician and MD that has expertise in nutrition, allergy, environmental medicine, Lyme disease, and the healing of mind, body, spirit as a unified whole. He co-founded the New England Center of Holistic Medicine in Newberry, Massachusetts. He has taught extensively, including practitioner training courses at the Omega Institute, the National Institute of Behavioral Medicine, and the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. He created and organized the Lyme Fundamentals course, which is presented annually at the International Lyme and Associated Disease Conferences. He is the author of several review articles in medical journals and the Lyme Times. His integrative medical practice in Denver, Colorado, focuses on the diagnosis and treatment of tick-borne diseases. Dr. Kindalera, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I am so excited to dive into your story. And I am curious, what got you focused on the treatment of Lyme disease? Okay, I have uh, what might be called an apocryphal story. Mm-hmm. My, my medical practice uh, was basically an integrative or functional medicine practice. We didn't call it that back then. We had different names for it, like complementary and, and alternative medicine. I was trained as a classic internist, so I had that background. And in August of 1996, I came down with this high fever, shaking chills, uh, drenching sweats, diffuse severe muscle aches. It's the middle of the summer, and then two, three days later, I was fine, went for runs, and then the next week, it came back. And I was in denial. I thought, well, some virus. But then when it came back again, I thought, hmm, okay, I got to get this checked out. I went to a friend of mine. We did some tests, and it came back as Lyme disease. And I thought, oh, okay, that's cool. I'll take some antibiotics. I'll be fine. But instead of being fine, I got worse in a different way. I developed severe anxiety and sleep problems. And I'm taking antibiotics. I I got another test that again confirmed that I had Lyme disease. I'm feeling terrible. And I called up a doctor who then and now to some degree is considered a world expert in Lyme disease. And he was at Tufts New England Medical Center which is my alma mater. He very graciously and courteously called me back and I presented my my situation to him. And he said, well, you don't have Lyme disease. I said, well, what about the tests? You know, they were slam dunk. He said, false positive, they were wrong. And I said, well, why don't I have Lyme disease? He said, because if you did, you'd be better now. And I said, whoa, um, well, what do I have? And he said, something else. That was it. That was the conversation. I was somewhat stunned. It it turns out he was categorically wrong. I, I absolutely had Lyme disease. 
And he was correct. I had something else. I had babesiosis. But babesiosis, for, for, your, for the listeners to understand, this is a co-infection among the handful of, of other infections you can get from ticks other than Lyme disease. Um, it was mostly under the radar back then. It was years later that that, that was diagnosed but it was causing these awful neuropsychiatric symptoms. And eventually I ended up getting Bartonella too. I was living in Massachusetts. It became a pretty endemic area. In fact, all my kids and my ex-wife all got Lyme disease. And it became, and I finally got better because I got, I was sick for a long time and I was totally disabled for a while. Uh, it was apparent that there are very few docs who know what they're doing. The Infectious Diseases side of America and the CDC got it all wrong. And, um, and I said, wow, you know, if I can help anyone not experience what I've gone through with this, I'll have, I'll have I'll done a mitzvah, a good thing. And, and uh, so that's how I got into it, that, you know, it's, and back then, by the way, so this is going back 20 plus years, most of us, most of us physicians who are treating uh, Lyme disease and chronic infections in particular, either we personally had our experience with it or a close family member and just came into personal contact with the inability of the routine mainstream infectious disease doctors, whatever. They didn't know what they were doing. That's how we got into it back then. Yeah. I have so many questions to spin off of your stories. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that that will really resonate with some folks. Um, you talk about in your book that Lyme is an epidemic. Um, and I think it's commonly thought, okay, well, I don't live in the Northeast, so I probably don't have Lyme. Um, can you discuss a little bit of just is Lyme just in the Northeast type thing and just kind of just myth busts out a little? Yeah. So first of all, it, it is an epidemic and, it, and even the CDC acknowledges that it's an epidemic. According to the CDC, something like 40,000 people a year are reported to the CDC, but do, they do their algorithm and realize it's probably underreported by 10 to one, that makes it 400,000. However, however, they have very stringent criteria for reporting. That is, uh, some studies would suggest that only about four to five out of 10 of those people who have Lyme disease would meet their criteria to be able to be reported, okay? So, so if you, let's say if there's only four out of 10, then you're gonna have to take that 400,000 and multiply it, and it's gonna be well over a million new cases a year. And that doesn't even include the people who got Lyme who were asymptomatic when they got it and didn't, didn't get clinically diagnosed. So there's well over a million new cases a year. It's, it's generally accepted now that 10 to 20% of them go on to become chronically ill. So now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people every year becoming chronically ill. And that doesn't even include those people who were never originally diagnosed and ended up being misdiagnosed with a chronic illness like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, autoimmune disorders, neuropsychiatric diagnoses or labels. Okay, so it's a lot, it, it, it's a lot. And then more to the point of your question, you know, the very first case of Lyme disease in the United States was in Wisconsin. 1971, a dermatologist named Scrementi saw someone who had a tick attachment, he had a bullseye rash. He was aware of the European literature, which had been describing this for the better part of the century, and put the person on penicillin, and he did fine. And then it was discovered in the late 70s in, in um, uh, Lyme, Connecticut, where there was an outbreak of, of kids with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, fairly uncommon autoimmune disorder in kids, which of course wasn't JRA at all. 
it was Lyme disease. The, the doctor who headed that investigation was the same doctor who told me I didn't have Lyme. And he's a rheumatologist. And basically they zeroed in on the joint issues, but they never really acknowledged the neurologic problems. And I can tell you the neurologic problems are worse than the musculoskeletal ones for sure. Okay, it turns out that there were, there are hot spots, and then there's everywhere else. It's important to realize that Lyme disease has been reported in all 50 states. There is no state in the United States of America where you cannot get Lyme disease. There are places that you're much more likely to get it. So we start with the Northeast, which is considered endemic, and, and definitely the Great Lakes states and the Northwest. And what they have in common is humidity because the ticks prefer humidity. But the Southeast is really endemic too. I see patients from the Southeast with some regularity. The doctors there are not diagnosing it as much, so it's not as obvious that there's a lot of Lyme there. And you start heading west, and I see so many patients from Texas and Missouri. And here in Colorado, our beautiful state of Colorado, where the Department of Health says you can't get Lyme disease here. Right. So, so I would say that about I'm, at least half my patients are from Colorado, okay? And the rest are from all over. And of those Colorado patients, I would say at least 5% of them got it in Colorado. No question. Absolutely no question. Along with all the co-infections that are described and I'm sure we'll get into. So um, the point is nowhere is totally safe, but some places are a lot safer than others. If you wanted to live in the very safest place, I'd go to New Mexico where it's so dry. Um, but, you know, I won't vacation on Cape Cod. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to go to those places. It, it, it's, it's just a huge problem, but it's a mistake to say, well, I'm safe if I go here or there. It's, you're not totally safe. It's just safer. And you should still do your due diligence. And, I mean, the – so – you talked about neurological and joint problems, but I think the big thing that I want to hit on with this being the gut health reset podcast is I really want to hit on some of the gastrointestinal complaints as well, um, that someone might present with, with Lyme or with some of the co-infections. Can you maybe break some of those down? Okay. So, um, I'm going to work my way there, Dr. Barter, okay? So most of my patients have chronic infection. I see maybe a dozen recent infection a year, and 95% of my patients have been sick for years or decades before they come to see me. So this is a, first, there's a significant difference between recent or acute onset versus long-term or chronic. The recent or acute onset, if they're lucky, get diagnosed and treated properly, and they can do fine. But I want to move into people who develop chronic illness. One thing is, I believe 100% of them have co-infections. I have not yet seen, <laughs> not yet seen a chronic patient who did not have at least one and often several co-infections. And as an aside, so far of the hand, I've seen maybe in within the past 12 months, maybe a half dozen acute onset uh, Lyme disease, they all had co-infections too. It's really the rule, okay? Now, what happens when you get Lyme and co-infections? What happens with these infections is they don't they, they don't invade tissue the way we normally think, say, of a strep infection or a wound infection where the, where the microbes are invading our cellular network and then there's a local response and inflammation that 
takes out the bugs and repairs the tissue and so on. That's the way we normally think of infection. So instead of sitting hitting hardware, what these bugs do is they hit software. They dysregulate and they dysregulate, dysregulate our immune system, uh, our neurological system, our endocrine system, which as you know, are really not separate systems at all. I mean, these things are all one integrated information network that's trying to keep our body in some sort of homeostasis and functioning properly. And the gastrointestinal system is part of that also. The gastrointestinal system, as you well know, has, has more neurons than the spinal cord. It has more immune cells than the rest of the body put together. It's got its own um, hormone network that communicates with the rest of the body giving rise to the concept of a gut emotion, which is literally accurate. Okay, so my point is that, that the, what happens with Lyme in which the bottom line is systemic inflammation. For, for people who haven't been aware of this, think COVID. This is what happens with COVID patients, okay? Those of us who've been treating Lyme disease, know, we, we know, we understand what's going on with COVID. And um, so when the GI system gets hit, an awful lot of things can happen. And then there's the downstream things that happen. So the first thing that can happen is that the bugs themselves can, can cause gastrointestinal systems just directly. Um, the worst bug, the worst uh, tick-borne infection to cause gastrointestinal system issues is Bartonella. Uh, people who haven't been in the Lyme community probably never heard of Bartonella, but it turns out to be fairly ubiquitous. Um, if you read about cat scratch disease, that's Bartonella. And, um, and it's interesting, Bartonella is a very weird bug, also a very dangerous bug. Many people get Bartonella from a cat scratch, for example, and they still harbor Bartonella and they're totally asymptomatic. Some people just don't react to it. So I should point out that some of this is a seed and soil issue. That is, it's not only the bug, it's our reaction to it. And that's determined by a lot of issues, including genetics. So Bartonella has this potential to cause severe neuroinflammation and in fact, um, when we see people with severe neuropsychiatric symptoms in association with Lyme disease, it's usually Bartonella. And Bartonella can cause severe gastrointestinal problems. And it can cause anything from so-called irritable bowel complaints to inflammatory bowel disease. I've had, I'm thinking right now of a young woman who had Bartonella infection that manifested as Crohn's disease. And her doctors put her on a um, on prednisone, and it made her dramatically worse. No surprise. And because prednisone suppressed the immune system, and then the infection just got worse. Um, I had a patient with Bartonella who was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis, and in even worse, primary sclerosing choleangitis. That's a that's it, it, that is a not that common problem in which there's inflammation of the bile ducts, both inside and outside the liver. And it can be fatal. Again, it's associated with a lot of cancer and associated with cirrhosis of the liver. But Bartonella was in the colon causing colitis and the immune reaction to the Bartonella was causing this cholangitis. And when, when the, he was given uh, vancomycin orally, which is not absorbed, which killed the Bartonella in his colon, the cholangitis went away because he was no longer having that autoimmune reaction to the Bartonella. Okay, so Bartonella can cause neuropathy and you could end up with gastroparesis when your bowels just paralyze, don't move. People with this really severe chronic constipation issues taking tons of Miralax, have, needing to get enemas and all sorts of drugs now being developed to help treat this. Um, but we can keep on going with the gut. Uh, 
one of the issues, as I described, is people develop chronic inflammation, and that includes multiple sensitivity syndromes. Most of my patients with chronic Lyme have food sensitivities. Most of them didn't have food sensitivities before they got Lyme, but because of the, the perturbation of the immune system, and now it's become more sensitive or hyperreactive, now they've developed food sensitivities. Most common foods would be eggs, dairy, and gluten. Those are the most common foods, but it could be a whole lot of other foods as well. Those are simply the most common. So those food sensitivities often manifest in gut issues and other systemic complaints. If they eat those foods, well, guess what? They, they sometimes get belly aches or diarrhea, but they also get uh, brain fog and headaches and joint pains and things like that. So we often do elimination challenge diets. We also send out blood tests for food sensitivities. Um, you know, I skipped something. I, I mentioned how Bartonella can cause a neuropathy resulting in severe constipation, but it can also cause diarrhea just from the inflammation that I was, was talking about. Okay, Babesia sometimes causes these symptoms. And I should add, and by the way, they can end up with chronic nausea and sometimes with vomiting as well. Um, so here's one that we see a lot, and that's SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, right? And so again, for, the, for your listeners, the, the large colon is teeming with trillions of bacteria. The small intestine, it's not sterile, but it's relatively scarce in terms of bacteria. But under certain conditions, bacteria can overgrow there. There's two really common situations in my patient population that can allow that to happen. One is the constipation that can occur with Bartonella in particular, and maybe some other issues like food sensitivities or parasites. These can cause constipation as well, right? So now you have bugs migrating from the large colon up, excuse me, into the small intestine. Um, and you have overgrowth there. Another issue that is really not uncommon in my patient population is hypochlorhydria, a fancy way of saying low stomach acid. As you know, high stomach acid gets all the tension. Why? Well, because we have drugs that treat it. And I think these drugs are terrible. <laughs> and, and so... Um, also known as like PPIs or proton pump inhibitors. Can you, you just, can you just touch on why those are terrible? Because I don't think a lot of folks, I think a lot of folks think they're pretty benign. And I think you bring up a really great point with that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Barter. That's, um, we should talk about that really. Um, we got a lot to cover. <laughs> yeah. so, so protein pump inhibitors, what they do is they actually decrease your stomach's ability to to uh, generate acid. And why, do you, why are they prescribed? Well, because GERD, which is gastroesophageal reflux disorder or heartburn, you know, is very, very common. And when you decrease the stomach acid, you still get, you still get reflux, but it's not as acidic. And so it tends not to burn so much, okay? It, so it's prescribed for GERD and technically is only supposed to be used short term. But the gastroenterologists tell you, oh, no, you can stay on this stuff for life. And, and you can't get off of it then. And, and if, in fact, I've had patients just take it for a week or two and have trouble getting off of it. Because here's what's, what happens. When you decrease stomach acid, there's relaxation in the sphincter between the esophagus and the stomach. There's actually more reflux, but it's benign because it's not very acidic, okay? But then you take away the protein pump inhibitor, you still have some relaxation in that sphincter left, you get people are worse when they try to stop it. They're worse than before they started the PPI. So, you know, when I have patients on PPIs, we do this very slow titration off of the PPIs, it's really challenging. Okay, well, 
Turns out hydrochloric acid is very important. I don't understand why the gastroenterologists don't understand that, but they don't really look at things from a functional standpoint. They're looking for, for uh, ulcerative disease and tumors and things like that. You know, they look up, you look down, you they don't see anything, you're fine, but you may not be fine at all, right? You could have all sorts of problems with digestion and assimilation and, and inflammation that's not visible. So, so hydrochloric acid is important for these reasons. One is you need it to chelate minerals for proper absorption. For women in particular, low hydrochloric acid is a major risk factor for osteoporosis, but all the minerals are gonna go down. You need hydrochloric acid for proper po protein digestion and assimilation. It's our first step in breaking down protein into its amino acids. People on long-term PPIs often are very deficient in amino acids. We also need it to, uh, as a barrier function. Hydrochloric acid kills bugs before they get into the small intestine. And therein lies low hydrochloric acid as a significant risk factor for SIBO, because now we have bugs getting into the small intestine that should have been knocked off at the stomach lining. So what is SIBO? There's right now, there are two classes of organisms uh, that cause SIBO. One is the hydrogen producers, and the hydrogen producers tend to cause bloating and gas and loose stools often nausea, and then the, the methane producers, which are not bacteria, they're called methanogens, they're from some distant planet called Archaea. I had never heard of them before, SIBO. And they now are, they now are their own kingdom. Um, they don't have the cell nucleus, I don't understand them, but, but they produce methane, and they tend to produce constipation, as well as the bloating, the gas, the nausea, and, and abdominal distress. And so we have different agents to treat those things, but we have to treat the underlying issue. You know, if someone is severely constipated, why are they constipated? And if someone has low hydrochloric acid, we need to give them hydrochloric acid. And um, interesting caveat, I have had at least a handful of patients in my career where we've given them one tablet of hydrochloric acid, and they had major heartburn and indigestion. Now, as you know, Dr. Barter, one tablet is very little compared to what our stomach should be making. The issue has been that they uh, have been hypo, they've been achlorhydric so long that their stomach lining simply are not acclimated to acid. And then you give them a little bit and poof, they, they just don't tolerate it. So we have to go very, very slow on a titration, often starting with like a half a teaspoon of vinegar, which is the old time remedy for low hydrochloric acid, right? So, okay, but now it gets, everything about chronic Lyme is complicated. That's, I was gonna title my book, <laughs> Lyme disease, it's complicated. Because <laughs> it is, it's it, really complicated. It, it is, you know, so that's actually one of the first chapters of my book is it's complicated. Here's why we're not talking about a simple infection. So many people struggle with bloating, bowel issues, brain fog, fatigue. You might not even have any gut issues, but did you know the cause of it could be food sensitivities or gut infections? What I have done is I have brought a talented functional nutritionist into my practice. We have very similar training in the nutritional world. And her name is Alexis Appleberry. She is awesome. So you can head on over to our website, Alt, A-L-T, FAM, F-A-M, Med, M-E-D, and have a consultation with her and schedule so that she can help you get to the root cause of your problems. Okay, well, uh, I suspect like you, I see a lot of people with SIBO, but then we're looking at what are risk factors, but also a lot of these people with SIBO have fungal overgrowth and a lot of them have parasites. So now we get into that many more problems. I mentioned in the, uh, when we first started talking about gut that a lot of food sensitivities can cause gut issues that often manifest as quote unquote irritable bowel, which for the sake of listeners, I just want to dispense of that diagnosis. It's a garbage basket, wastebasket diagnosis. You know, 
it's actually 80% of the diagnoses coming out of a gastroenterologist's office, 80% of them end up on PPIs. I mean, it's really mashuga. It, it's this is a, not a good situation. But you know, it's like equivalent to you, you go into a doctor, you say, Doctor, I have this pain in my head, and the doctor's okay, I know your diagnosis, you have a headache. You know. That's what irritable bowel syndrome is. It's like, oh, we know what you have. You have irritable bowel syndrome. Well, that doesn't tell us anything about, about what you have. And, and, um, and food sensitivities, as I know you're aware, you know, they're a big issue. And these, all these other things I'm describing need to be investigated. Before Lyme, I did medical detective work on people with chronic illness, and I saw people with irritable bowel syndrome all the time. And we, when we looked at food sensitivities and stomach acid issues and um, pancreatic insufficiency, not enough enzymes, sometimes not enough bile secretion, and then parasites. Uh, I have to admit that I'm beginning to agree more and more with Dietrich Klinghart that most of us have parasites. And most of us, if we're really healthy, we're well balanced. I don't know who that is out there. I haven't met them, but, but, but most of people, if, if they are otherwise healthy, the parasites can just be a colonizer along with the trillions of other bugs that we cohabit with. And then when our immune system gets whacked out, now we're reacting to the presence of these bugs, just like we react, react to Lyme and different co-infections, and they cause a lot of distress. They can cause not only gastrointestinal distress, but they can also cause systemic inflammation from headaches and brain fog and fatigue to joint pains. It's so interesting when we start treating, when we start treating these uh, parasites, the systemic symptoms that get better. And when we're, people are, are not getting better from everything else we're doing, I often say, you know, let's, let's look at parasites. And as you know, the, 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 the uh, mainstream labs do a terrible job at recognizing parasites. I mean, I don't even bother. Uh, sometimes, many times I just say, let's just treat and see what, what happens. But there is a, in, in our vicinity where we live, there, there's a, a para wellness clinic in Aurora where you can actually order a kit by mail and they, they do a much, much better job at, at finding parasites and worms. You'll never get a worm diagnosed in, in a mainstream hospital lab. So, okay, here's another story. So this is at least three or four years ago, a patient, lovely, lovely 60-year-old uh, ICU nurse who what was, she had Lyme and Babesia. She was about 80% better. And then she came in and told me the story that she was on the internet and she heard this discussion. She, she had had some gastrointestinal system issues, but they were mostly better. Uh, just being off gluten. Then uh, she decided to go on this product called Mimosa Pudica Seed, right? <laughs> and now the interesting thing is I've been using Mimosa Pudica, not the seed, for years because it's a uh, Asian anti-malarial and it's really effective for Babesia infection. But this is not what I was using, which was from the leaves and the stems, this is the seed, and it has totally different action. And she took it, started taking it, and she started seeing worms come out, including she identified a tapeworm. I mean, she, it was just, you know, quite amazing. And she had no idea, no idea. And then afterwards, she said she couldn't believe how good she felt. So um, after that, I started giving, giving this most of Pudica seed to, to patients and saying, watch your stool, see what happens. And at least 50% say, oh my God, I can't believe what came out of me. And there, I have, well, you love this story. So a kid who's, he's got a, a pan syndrome, you know, acting out with all sorts of mood changes. And um, when he went on the most, mo he had food sensitivities and that really helped, but the mimosa pudica seed really helped a lot. But, and then it turned out 
he only needed to take it during the full moon. <laughs> That's when his, he was acting out more, right? When they say that these things get active, right? So it's important for people to know that you can have parasites without having any idea you have parasites. And while they often cause, or they can cause, you know, an acute diarrhea or dysentery, dysentery syndrome when you first get it, Giardia, which is not uncommon here in Colorado, but chronic, chronic parasites often cause constipation and other nonspecific bowel complaints. So that's something we look at too. You know, when you bring up the, the GI system, as you know, that I have a big chapter <laughs> in my book on the GI system because it it is finally getting the respect it deserves. You know, it's, it's, it's really the first system in our body from an evolutionary standpoint. And, um, and it's developed in a way, you know, as much or more than most systems in our body in terms of how it interacts with everything else. Yeah. Um, so I just gave a very long answer to the question. <laughs> Well, I think it was a great answer. That was awesome. The one thing that I want to dive a little bit more into with GI symptoms is histamine because histamine has become a big buzzword and we're talking about antihistamine diets and, and whatnot. And so I want to know how, um, what you see plays into that and maybe what the root cause is of the histamine reactions. Yeah, thank you for bringing this up, Dr. Broder. So what we're really talking about is mast cell activation syndrome. So mast cells are primitive white cells. You know, we talked about the primitive, you know, single cell organisms. And, you know, as they developed, the, the first line of defense was were these mast cells that would be particularly in orifices and areas where other agents might come and then we could react to them. Okay, so, so we still have mast cells and mast cells contain up to 200 inflammatory mediators of which histamine happens to be the most famous, but they're ones that are much, much more potent than histamine like leukotrienes, for example, and some of the cytokines. So the, the, um, these, these mediators sit inside this membrane and that, and that makes up the mast cell and then something can trigger the mast cell and these mediators release. Then they release, there's an inflammatory reaction and this can manifest a whole lot of different ways. It can manifest with our straightforward allergy symptoms, hay fever, food reactions, anaphylaxis, this is all mast cell mediated, but it can cause inflammatory system, symptoms all over the body. And so we're talking again, joint pains, migraine headaches, uh, in the bowels, you, you can get dysentery, abdominal cramp and diarrhea syndromes and bloating. Um, you can get severe rashes. People, uh, with um, chronic Lyme tend to have mast cell activation syndrome where these mast cells whose, whose main job really should be protection are overreactive. The threshold for degranulation and release of these chemicals goes down and the Lyme spirochete, the Lyme bacteria is one of the things that can trigger it. Um, and, and then, it's adding to all this inflammation. So it's, it's sort of a responder, but it, then it becomes the cause of tons of the inflammation, which is the, again, the bottom line problem with these chronic infections. Um, we, we, uh, we, we know histamine. And in fact, I, I'm gonna recommend to your listeners that they do a little experiment, which is to scratch the inside of their forearm with their fingernail and just watch to see what happens. If it's, there's a red line or a white line, or sometimes a red line in between a couple right lines, 
which I'm glad to say I don't see at the moment, um, that um, that's called dermatographia, which is just Latin for skin writing. And that's a histamine reaction. And that means there's some excess histamine, okay? And consider that if there are chronic symptoms, that mast cell activation could be contributing to whatever that person's chronic symptoms are. Okay, well, what do we do about mast cell activation syndrome? One thing is we try to improve the integrity of the lining of the mast cells so that they don't tend to discharge their contents. We try to make that more secure. And we do that with uh, certain nutrients like magnesium and essential fatty acids, um, bioflavonoids in particular like quercetin, Q-U-E-R-C-I-T-I-N. Um, bioflavonoids are vitamin C helpers. And, we've, and they're found naturally in the rinds of oranges and grapefruit, that stringy stuff that people tend to throw away. And, and there are medications uh, like chromalin sodium or gastrochrome. Uh, people taking this gastrochrome before meals can often block food reactions. Back in the old days, pre-Lyme, when I, and I dealt, I did so much environmental illness back then. I took thousands of people through elimination challenge diets and, and I saw people with all sorts of different kinds of reactions, including anaphylactic reactions. And I actually had people who could take gastrochrome before eating their scallops that normally would cause anaphylaxis and they were fine. Now, you don't do that at home, folks. You know, this was, you know, sitting in the emergency room parking lot with a friend who was ready to shoot them in and, and get a shot of epinephrine. Okay, so, uh, but the point is it can really help block these, these reactions. There's another drug called ketotophen. There's, there, there's certainly more things one can do at that end. And then there are agents we can use that, that um, actually help break down histamine. They're called DAO or diamine oxidase. And that's simply an enzyme that we use to break down histamine. But I can tell you that I see patients with Lyme who develop really severe mast cell activation. And now you have to avoid foods that contain histamine. And this, so there are these diets, and I, I listed in my book, these diets where that, um, oh, there's a long list of foods that include yummy things like citrus and tomatoes and avocado. And they are foods that not only that that not only have histamine, but trigger histamine release and so on. So there's a lot of potential diet considerations. But Dr. Barter, I'll tell you that it's really inconsistent one person to the next. So for example, my wife who has pretty severe mast cell activation issues, she can do avocados, but she can't do tomatoes. You know, who knows why? Other people, it's the opposite. You know, so you really do have to figure this out for yourself. But it can make a huge difference. It can make a huge difference dealing with mast cell activation issues. Very good. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's across the board. I should just avoid these histamine containing foods and that's it. Um, it's really individualized. I would agree with that. So I think one of the biggest problems when it comes to treating Lyme, figuring out what the co-infections are, um, a, a lot of folks will claim to treat Lyme disease, or you also get written off because maybe the initial testing, if you had that done in a traditional medical setting, might be negative. So I always get asked what the next step is to, to find somebody that is trained to treat this. So What's the next step? And if someone's listening and they're like, what do I do? Because my traditional doc said, nah, you, you, this, is, this is normal. Yeah, it, it, that's a great question because I think it happens every day, you know, here in Colorado. Um, so uh, it's interesting. So uh, in the past four to five weeks, I've had three or four new onset patients. You know, I, I, I don't take new patients. I, I only occasionally take new patients. And that's simply because 
I'm booked. I don't have space to take them. I, I feel badly about it and I end up with this long waiting list. But if someone has acute Lyme, I do cartwheels. I, I work an extra day. I do whatever. And, and, and we see them because the sooner you treat, the better. And so if someone says, well, you know, I, a month ago, this is such and such happened and I was fine until then, we get, we get them in that week. And, and I feel great about that because I, I, whether they realize it or not, I've saved them a lifetime of misery. Absolutely. <laughs> by, by treating them. If someone had done that for me, you know, my life would run a different course. Okay. So, um, so here's, uh, well, I'll tell you a couple different stories. This is a woman who was in um, Florida and she had tick attachment and she developed a rash and she, three weeks later, she develops some other symptoms and I don't have her chart in front of me, I can't remember, but I remember she did have some neuropathic symptoms. Um, so she had some, I think some numbness and tingling and, and some sharp pains. And I think she had some sweats and chills, some night sweats in particular. And uh, she went to see her doctor who, who told her, are you ready for this? Well, you can't have Lyme disease. There's, there's no Lyme in Florida. Uh, wow, I have a bunch of patients from Florida with Lyme. And there's, I have no idea where he got this piece of this data of there no Lyme in Florida, but why he would totally discount what happened to her with a tick attachment or rash and then subsequent symptoms to me is just terrible, terrible medicine. But because of that, and because she's a smart cookie, she, she searched and found a Lyme literate physician. And I said to her, well, you know, it was probably a gift that this doctor refused to treat you because then you sought out a doctor like myself. And when we went through her history, she had Lyme, Babesia, and Bartonella. She actually tested positive to all three of them, which is unusual simply because the tests for Babesia and Bartonella are relatively insensitive. But she tested positive to all of them. And I'm gonna point out that the tick was analyzed and was negative. I really have been disappointed in this tick testing. Okay, yeah. So at a very good lab, by the way, tested negative. Now you could, you could imagine that maybe she had another tick attachment that, and she never saw that one. And you, you know, as you know, these ticks, you know, two millimeters big, especially in the spring, they don't get very big. They're in the nymph stage. They tend to hide out in warm intertriginous places so that you know you're in your crotch they're in your armpits and the scalp between your buttocks you know this is why you really need an intimate partner to be checking each other at night if you're in any area where you're at risk okay so uh, so at any rate uh you know she sought me out and she got tested then i have three other patients that I saw over the past three weeks, again, with acute Lyme. And um, each one of them was put on doxycycline by their doc. Seen that commonly. And, but I can also tell you that, that I think that if they only had Lyme, that the doxy had a decent chance of getting it, maybe. Um, as far as I'm concerned, the dose that they prescribe is too low and they don't keep people on it long enough. I will treat uh, uncomplicated acute Lyme disease for six weeks of antibiotics. And I typically will add some, some herbal antimicrobials and so on. Well, uh, as I'm thinking of these patients, one of them has Lyme and Bartonella. Another one has Lyme and Babesia. And, uh, and the third one, I think, has Lyme and Babesia as well. Well, guess what? They're in for a world of pain, just like what happened to me. I had Lyme and Babesia when it started, and just treating Lyme, which we treated aggressively, just didn't do it. And I became severely chronically ill. Again, I feel fantastic that I can treat these people early on and have a very good chance of of curing this. 
But, um, you know, coming back specifically to your question, uh, I think uh, people who come to me are certainly more cognizant aware of the potentials of, of Lyme than the doctors in this state who, I, just, I, I could tell you story after story, but it's, it's so upsetting, you know, what doctors say. I've had doctors yell at patients. What do you mean you want to be tested for Lyme disease? And I'm, I don't understand what, why they're so threatened. It's really crazy, but they are ignorant. It's really sad. And, um, you know, one of the services that, that I offer here is if someone wants to get properly tested for Lyme, that they can call my office. And for a real nominal fee, we arrange for them to get tested at IGENEX laboratory. Now that's in Palo Alto, but we get them a kit and a requisition. They get their blood drawn locally. Three weeks, I got the lab results. I call them up and say, here's what the results are. And here's you know what I suggest your next step is. You know, Cause that's the gold standard for both finding Lyme and its cofactors. So you're covering everything at that point. I wish I were. If I was going to do all the testing I'd like to do at, at IGENEX, it would cost about $2,500. Yeah, yep, so that's I, what I've seen. So I start with just testing for Lyme, and the best test there is a Lyme immunoblot. It's much better than you can get in the commercial labs here. And it really has a, at least a 90% sensitivity. You still have to know how to interpret the test. It's not just black and white. The test can confirm, but it, it can't rule it out. It's not a 100% test. You have to put it together with the patient's uh, syndrome, manifestations, symptoms. Okay, so um, most of the time people, you know, I call them up. I say, why did you want to get tested? Oh, well, I have such severe fatigue and brain fog. My neck hurts all the time and my elbows and this and that. So, okay, <laughs> that's consistent with you tested positive for Lyme. And then I might ask some more questions. And I say, do you have night sweats? Oh yeah, you know, sometimes drenching. I said, okay, well, you probably have Babesia then, even though we didn't test for it, you know. And, um, and then I'll ask some other questions. Uh, I'm gonna tell you a story, this is amazing. Uh, it does relate a little bit to the gut. Uh, so a few years back, it's four years now, uh, a mother brought her 16-year-old daughter to me who's diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. And she had been in and out of outpatient, inpatient, outpatient, inpatient, outpatient, five times to an eating disorder unit. But she was just refusing to eat. She had to get all her calories through a nasogastric tube. And, you know, she basically had what we understand as an anorexia nervosa syndrome where she felt she had to lose weight despite the fact that she was slim and svelte. And, um, and you know, it's considered, you know, an emotional disorder. It also happens to be, it happens, has the highest mortality of any mental health disorder. You know that? This is very serious, anorexia nervosa. Okay, well, the doctors threw up their hands and so we don't know what else to do for her. But the mother um, was a nurse. They had lived in upstate New York, which is also highly endemic. In fact, a new patient last week was upstate New York. And, uh, and so the mother had her tested for Lyme, it was positive. She brought her to see me. She had three co-infections. She had Babesia, she had Bartonella, and she had Mycoplasma. Now, Bartonella, as you probably know, can cause an interesting skin manifestation. It can cause these, these red lines, which are called stria, S-T-R-I-A-E for striations. And they can be misconstrued as stretch marks because they, they can be red, violaceous. They're not in the same skin planes as stretch marks. And this person who had never been overweight, had no reason to have stretch marks, had these stria which she interpreted as stretch marks and further evidence of her need to lose weight. Oh Isn't man. Isn't that amazing? That's and so sad. It's sad, but here's the good part. She took it. She was on antibiotics. 
for a year, including some intravenous antibiotics. She's been total remission for, for, for uh, three, four years now. Yeah. And, and now I'm talking with some people around the country, including uh, the Columbia uh, Lyme Disease Research Unit about doing a study on patients with anorexia nervosa where we test them. We test them for uh, uh, these different microbes. We also test them for autoimmune inflammation in the brain, which I'll get to in a minute, and then compare that to a control population and see what happens. So I just want to mention that uh, in 1994, Susan Sweeto at the National Institutes of Mental Health described kids who had, were fine, then they got a strep infection, and then they fell off the cliff with these neuropsychiatric symptoms, particularly OCD anxiety syndromes, but often depression, all sorts of mood swings and oppositional issues. And they started, they, they cognitive function declined. They often had had tics and these involuntary movement. They started bedwetting and sleep problems. Okay, so she called it PANDAS, Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disease Associated with Streptococcal Infections. But it turns out that it's not only strep that does it. It turns out that viruses do it. Uh, Epstein-Barr, HIV, um, I remember the common cold has been shown to do it, influenza, and Bartonella and Mycoplasma, common tick-borne co-infections, perhaps Lyme. We can't say for sure if Lyme by itself does it. I, I don't know if we'll ever be able to because I never see Lyme without these co-infections, right? So how do you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. At any rate, um, it's now called PANS, Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. I think it's a lousy name. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's a lousy name because it's not just pediatric and it's not just acute onset. It can be more of a stuttering or gradual onset rather than falling off a cliff like some of these kids do. And it turns out that the primary characteristics are either OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, or dietary restriction, anorexia nervosa. Those are the primary ways that it manifests. And of course, mental health disorders in, in all age groups, but particularly children and adolescents is skyrocketing. It needs to be looked at. I think it really needs to be looked at and addressed. I, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I could literally talk to you all day long. You're just such a wealth of information and knowledge. But um, I, I want to make sure that listeners can find you if they want to get in touch with you. So um, so where can folks get in touch with you and find your book? Okay. The book, my book, uh, which came out in March after several years of work. So I'm really happy. And it's gotten, and I've gotten wonderful feedback on it. Um, and you can get it in any bookstore. You can get it on Amazon. There's tons of reviews on Amazon. Um, so the book is easy to get, and it goes into things we've talked about in tons of detail. And the book was written for both doctors and patients. There's enough detail in there to really help a lot of patients know how to evaluate, work up, and treat these different imbalances. And, and it's written out in lay language that patients can easily understand and, and become empowered to do a lot of stuff themselves. Okay, so that's the book. If they want to get a hold of me, probably the best way is I now have a website. I've actually never. <laughs> that's website. great. Uh, you know, I never needed a website. I always had patience, but, but because of the book, I have the website is called recoveryfromlime.com. So it's really the book's website, but it's mainly about me. Uh, I give a lot of talks and, and then links to those talks are posted and articles that I've written are posted. And, and, you know, this podcast that we're doing when that's all ready, that'll get posted on the website, Dr. Barter. Thank you. Um, so that would be, and then, you know, you can contact me through the website. Okay. We'll make sure that we have those links below as well so that people can easily get in contact. 
Okay. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time and being on the show today. You're welcome. It'll be a pleasure on my side too. I hope we can do it again. Thank you for listening to the Gut Health Reset Podcast. Please make sure you subscribe, leave a rating and a review so more people can hear about the podcast. And hey, take a screenshot of this episode and tag Dr. Anne Marie on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Anne Marie Barter. And for more resources, just visit DrAnneMarieBarter.com.